stress, the dreaded six-letter word that describes the response we have to difficulties we face while trying to make our way in the world. Magazines are always telling us how to deal with stress. Take a bubble bath, they say. Go to yoga. Do some deep breathing. You get the picture. As if all these activities will magically remove all the stress from your life. You must have seen these headlines in Lifestyle magazines while you wait your turn in the grocery store checkout line. Not to mention all the clickbaity advertisements we are pummeled with as we try to read the news online. These headlines all tell you that stress is bad. Stress is to be managed or avoided so that we don't drop dead from a heart attack at 50. They would have you believe that all stress is created equal and that whichever way you slice it, you should avoid stress like the plague. But is this actually true? Science says, uh, not really. Hi, my name is Shannon, and I'm a psychology student at Mount Allison University. As a parent, a professional, and a full-time student, I have experienced my fair share of stress. In this episode of This is Fine, we are going to talk about some of the benefits, yes, benefits, of being exposed to stress. Before we go any further, we need to differentiate between two types of stress. Wait, what? There are two types of stress? Actually, yes, stress can be acute or chronic. Acute stress is characterized by its shorter duration. The stressful thing happens, and then it goes away. A good example is a job interview. Now, I've been on my fair share of job interviews. They have mostly been with panels of high-level pharmaceutical industry-type executives, which by itself is kind of intimidating. Every single time, I notice that as I get closer to opening the door to the office where the interview will take place, my heart starts beating faster, my palms get clammy, and I start to sweat through the armpits of my suit jacket. Gross, I know. But I have the interview, I'm adequately prepared, and it goes well. I leave the building, and the stressful situation is over. Cue celebration with friends. Acute stress is short in duration and often exhilarating. You can see a near-future moment when the stress will be over. It is manageable, and you have the opportunity to recover after the event. So that's acute stress. Chronic stress, on the other hand, is long-lasting and much more diffuse. Consider a different job hunt type scenario. Imagine you've lost your job, and you've been hunting for months. The bills are piling up, and you haven't been able to get an interview. Anywhere. And there's no end to the struggle in sight. Cue the headaches, fatigue, and difficulty sleeping. Chronic stress is nagging, continual, and exhausting. There's often a sense that you have no control over the situation. This type of stress is associated with a host of negative consequences, such as depression and hypertension. This is the type of stress that most of us think about when we hear the word stress. The pile of things that are all screaming for our attention, situations we can't control, and our inability to manage the load effectively any longer. There's a lot to be said about chronic stress and its negative impact on health and well-being, but today we're going to focus our attention on acute stress. Specifically, what are the benefits associated with acute exposure to stress? Now that we understand the difference between acute stress and chronic stress, what pops into your head when you think about how your body responds to acute stress? Sweating? More rapid breathing and heart rate? Pupil dilation, maybe? These are all physiological responses that can be explained by the activation of your sympathetic nervous system. You know, that part of your nervous system that responds to threat, aka the fight-or-flight system. What your body is doing is preparing to act. You start breathing faster, and your heart rate increases. Blood vessels dilate, and blood is diverted from digestive or sexual organs to big muscle groups so that you can run away from or battle whatever the threat happens to be. Here's a little secret. 
your body can't tell the difference between the threat from a tiger chasing you and the threat from a looming deadline. So the physiological response is the same. Over the short term, these responses can be adaptive. Increased arousal such as this has the potential to impact various psychological and cognitive processes, helping you deal with whatever the threat may be, tiger or deadline. This stress response keeps us alive. It has been present throughout our evolutionary history and keeps us on our game. Stress equals survival. As Hans Selye put it, to be without stress is to be dead. We will talk about some of these responses from an evolutionary perspective throughout the podcast, but the benefits reach beyond survival. Wait, back to that Hans Selye person. Who the heck is he? He's the researcher who coined the term stress and who developed the stress concept as we know it. It may seem like we've known about this for hundreds of years, but we only started talking about stress as we do today in the 1940s with the research of Hans Selye. So that makes the stress concept about the same age as my mom. Weird. Some research has shown that there are improvements in vigilance, memory, reaction time, decision-making, and performance on various tasks under acute conditions of stress. And this makes sense if we take an evolutionary stance. What types of stress responses would help you survive an encounter with a hungry saber-toothed tiger? Well, vigilance, reaction time, decision-making, and possibly the memory of how you previously escaped a predator. Here's where it gets a little tricky, though. Research has shown that there is a trade-off between performance improvements in some domains, but worsening performance in others. And again, this makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. Under conditions of stress, we may have evolved to process more quickly than deeply. For example, you immediately run away from a tiger chasing you, rather than deeply processing which route would be most effective. We also see age and sex differences in performance under acute stress conditions. We will talk about some of this research later, but first let's talk about how exposure to acute stress can be a protective factor, both physically and psychologically. A lot of the early stress research was done on rats in the 60s and 70s. In one study, it was found that early exposure to mild stressors had a positive impact on the rat's ability to cope with stress later in their life. Before we get into the details of that study, here's a little trivia. What do you call a baby rat? Give up? My guess was a rattling, because that makes sense to me. But rat babies are actually called pups or kittens. Why pups or kittens? Shouldn't we just pick one? I find this so confusing. I'm going to stick with rattlings. Also, did you know that a group of rats is called a mischief? Me neither. So anyway, here's what happened in the study. The rats were either exposed to mild stressors as rattlings, or they were allowed to grow up without these mild stressful encounters. So the rattlings in the mild stress groups were exposed to a variety of stressors, like being frequently handled by humans, electroshock, or living with an ant of a different species, like a hamster or a mouse. The rattlings exposed to frequent bouts of mild stress displayed less fearful or emotional behavior when exposed to a stressful situation as mature rats. While humans are obviously not rats, this concept of stress inoculation could reasonably be applied to humans. Exposure to mild stress early on has the potential to help individuals cope with later exposure to stress. What is important to note is that the stressors were acute. The animals had the opportunity to recover from the stressful experience. Have you ever heard of snowplow parents? Me neither until recently, and it turns out that I kind of am one. Basically, a snowplow parent is one that works really hard to clear the path by removing all stress and obstacles from their children's lives. I have two small kids, and I'm learning through this research that it is an important developmental process for them to have to struggle through things sometimes. It's good for them, and it will help them cope with bigger struggles when they're older. 
It's hard for me to resist the urge to be a snowplow parent, but knowing that they will build confidence in their own abilities to manage difficult circumstances helps. If you want to learn more about building more resilient rats or humans, check out our episode on building resilience in kids. I've put a link in the show notes for you. Rats and tiny humans aside, what about physical stress as a protective factor? Well, it's well established that when you exercise, you expose your body to strain. This strain is indeed an acute stressor. You lift heavy things, you make your lungs work, you make your heart pump more blood faster. Even when you stretch, you apply a stress to your bones, muscles, and fascia. The body responds to these challenges by changing and adapting to better manage those specific challenges should they arise again. Those changes involve lowering resting heart rate, building more muscle tissue, and increasing lung capacity. Insulin sensitivity also improves, making your body more efficient at using the fuel you feed it. Your body does not really like to be pushed out of its comfort zone, so it makes these changes to cope with future stress. These physical adaptations serve to protect against heart disease and diabetes, and there is evidence that acute stress stimulates the functioning of our immune systems. From an evolutionary perspective, stressful events would probably have coincided with injury. Those who could heal from injury would have an advantage, and so immune enhancement under stress would be adaptive. Think about the cuts, scrapes, pulled muscles, or bruises you would get trying to escape from a predator. If your immune system is primed to work overtime, you are less likely to succumb to some awful infection and more likely to live to pass on your genes. So, beyond stress inoculation, immune response, and physical health, what does research say about cognitive effects of acute stress? Let's talk about memory, decision-making, and attention. Memory. How does exposure to acute stress affect our ability to remember things? It depends on the type of memory we're talking about. We can talk about short-term memory, long-term memory, explicit and implicit memory. Short-term and long-term memory are pretty self-explanatory. But what in the world is explicit and implicit memory? Implicit memory is not conscious. You don't realize that the memory of something is influencing your actions or decisions. Remember that saber-toothed tiger chasing you? You use your implicit memory of how to climb a tree to escape it. This is assuming saber-toothed tigers can't climb trees. I have no idea if they could. Maybe their big teeth got in the way. The point is that you didn't think about how to climb the tree. In that moment, you aren't consciously saying, I will put my left hand here, I will put my right foot there. You just automatically remember how to do it. Explicit memory, however, is conscious. You can remember a specific thing happening, or you actively work to remember something. Going back to our interview story earlier, you would be using your explicit memory to remember the name of your interviewer. Several studies have shown an improvement in certain types of memory under certain conditions. One study in particular reported that implicit memory improved when the stress occurred before the learning, but explicit memory improved when the stress occurred after the learning. Also, memory performance was better for negative emotional stimuli. In other words, we remember the bad stuff more easily, both consciously and unconsciously. Another study showed that short-term memory, also called working memory, is improved under conditions of stress in older women, but not older men. This study showed that women responded to memory tasks more accurately as the stress response increased to a certain point, and then more stress led to less accurate responding. This brings up an interesting point about acute stress. We're going to go down the garden path a bit here, but stay with me. I promise I have a point. The Yerkes-Dodson law suggests that there needs to be an optimal level of arousal for optimal performance, as in you need a little bit of that stress response to do your best work. Imagine this. You have a big project that you need to complete at work. There's no deadline, and it doesn't matter to anyone else if you complete it. No stress response occurs. So you just pick away at it from time to time, but nothing really gets done. It gets tossed into a folder, and eventually you forget about it. Low arousal, low performance. 
take that same project and give it a reasonable deadline. Add to that several colleagues whose work depends on you getting your part of the project done. Is that project going to get buried under the clutter on your desk? Nope. You work your butt off so that it's well done and you can submit it on time. There is a moderate acute stress response. Others are depending on you delivering good work on time, so you can't afford to let them down. Optimal arousal, optimal performance. Now imagine you have that project and four others like it. They're all due the same day and your overbearing, micromanaging boss keeps hounding you. Is that work going to be done well? Not likely. It'll be rushed and sloppy and you will be overwhelmed. Too much arousal, poor performance. The point is, you need some acute stress to push you to perform at your best. Too much or too little isn't helpful, but there's a stress sweet spot where your performance is optimized. This concept applies to more than just memory tasks. What happens when we need to make decisions under stress? Some research has shown that higher stress responses in men were associated with riskier choices on decision-making tasks. The same research showed that women made more advantageous choices under mild acute stress, but extremely high stress responses led those women to make less advantageous choices. Does this part remind you of something? Yep, that yerks Dodson Law. Optimal arousal, optimal performance. But does it seem odd that men tend to make riskier choices under stress? Another study suggested that the stress response may lead participants to ignore possible negative outcomes of a risky decision in favor of focusing on the potential rewards. What does it look like if we examine this through the lens of evolution once again? Now, this is purely speculation, but an interesting exercise. Imagine some early humans hunting. Generally, this was a male activity. The clan needs food. Is it the safest choice to try to bring down a mammoth? Probably not, but the payoff in terms of food and warm clothing for the clan would be huge. The stress of not having enough food or warm clothing to survive a cold winter would push the hunters to make this risky choice with a big reward. So it might seem like a bad thing that men tend to make riskier decisions under stress from our modern standpoint, but perhaps this is an adaptation that led to better survival in our ancestors. The final cognitive processes we're going to discuss are attention and processing. One study shows that early perception and vigilance was improved under conditions of stress, meaning that when we experience stress, we are on high alert and we have the ability to notice important things faster. The trade-off described by this research was that though the participants were on alert for and detected relevant stimuli faster, their ability to think more deeply about the stimuli was reduced. Let's take a more modern example this time. Imagine you are in an unfamiliar neighborhood. It's dark and you're walking alone back to your car. You know that this is not a safe situation and your body produces its stress response. You're on high alert for any sign of threat. Research suggests that our brain switches from task evaluation mode in the prefrontal cortex to a more sensory mode controlled by the amygdala in these types of situations. Wait, the prefrontal cortex does what? Let's back that up a little bit. The prefrontal cortex is the area of your brain responsible for planning, analyzing, and coordinating. Your amygdala is responsible for sensing and reacting to threat. So, under stress, your brain uses the amygdala to process rather than your prefrontal cortex. In other words, your attention is directed toward things that may be threatening, and your brain is using the amygdala to process that information. Here's an example. In my job and at school, I'm often working up against several competing deadlines for big projects. In this case, the threats are the looming deadlines. My attention is often so plugged into my computer and getting the writing done that I often don't notice that I've worked past lunch or if my husband is trying to talk to me about something. The focus is on the threatening thing, and it doesn't have to be a saber-toothed tiger. So, 
Do you still think all stress is bad? I hope not. Acute stress produces a range of adaptive responses. When we are exposed to stressful situations and successfully overcome whatever challenge caused the stress, we're better able to cope with stressful situations at later times. Think of it as a stress vaccine. Little bits of manageable stress with the opportunity to overcome a challenge help us prepare to manage stressful events in the future. Physical stress placed on our bodies through exercise results in changes that make the body stronger and better able to deal with physical challenges. Those changes also help protect the body from cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. How our bodies respond in stressful situations can be extremely adaptive and help us survive in situations of threat. Optimal arousal is also responsible for our drive to do things well in our lives. We need some stress. The key to benefiting from stress is that there is the opportunity to recover. It's also important that once the stressful event has passed, that we complete the stress response cycle. This means signaling to our bodies that there is no longer a threat and we can go back to rest mode. How do we do this? We connect with loved ones, we laugh, we move our bodies, we cry, and we express ourselves through art or music. I hope you enjoyed this discussion on the benefits of acute stress. Thanks for listening. This is Fine, a podcast about stress, burnout, and resilience, was created by students at Mount Allison University. The students created each episode as part of a fourth-year psychology class called Stress, Burnout, and Resilience, taught by me, Dr. Lisa Dawn Hamilton. There's a link in the show notes to access the full script with references. You can also go to mta.ca slash psychology and click on the This Is Fine podcast link. Episodes were recorded at the CHMA studios in Sackville, New Brunswick, or over the internet when that wasn't possible. Script assistance, podcast basics, and training were provided by Matt Tunnicliffe. Music and audio production by Jeremy Dahl at palebluedotstudios. Thanks for listening and for supporting these students' foray into the world of podcasting.